Are you a restaurateur, a chef, a passionate food entrepreneur? Turning your passion into a successful business takes great partnerships. Tune into Cisco's Virtual Kitchen every Tuesday and Thursday on Facebook Live for the people, the products, the solutions that will inspire your success. Or follow us on YouTube at Cisco Canada. Welcome to Table Talk, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the dynamic and exciting restaurant world. We sit down with industry leaders as they share best practices, highlight smart solutions, and discuss strategies for growth, ultimately helping food service operators learn how to affect positive change and grow their business. Now, here is your host, editor and publisher of Food Service and Hospitality Magazine, Rosanna Kyra. This morning, I'm pleased to welcome Fraser Nagy to Table Talk. Fraser is an expert in dining room economics and the guest experience. He kicked off his career in the restaurant industry at the young age of 13, working his way through kitchens and renowned dining rooms, saving his tip money and eventually founding Transparent Kitchen. While studying international economics and development, he conducted a year-long econometric study researching the determinants of sales in restaurants. His advanced understanding of economic theory with his love of food and 15 years of dining room experience has uniquely defined Fraser as a leader in the space. To date, Transparent Kitchen has helped 400 top restaurants and independent suppliers in both Canada and the US to effectively influence 1.4 million diners in a, matter of, in a manner of visual storytelling that has never been attempted before. Fraser is committed to a vision of changing the story of restaurant dishes and how they're communicated and in helping restaurants finally become profitable businesses. So good morning, Fraser, and welcome to Table Talk. Thank you so much for having me on. So um, in, in listening to your bio, you've had a really interesting um, you know, career and trajectory and starting in restaurants at the young age of 13 is pretty Pretty mind-boggling. What did you start at? What, what, what were you doing at the age of 13? Yeah, I, I had a family friend who got me, you know, that my first job in, you know, grade nine uh, at a golf course uh, banquet hall. Um, and honestly, from that point on, I, I think I had a shift once a week somewhere forever. <laughs> so That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, you learn your chops early, uh, just, you know, it was, it was in retrospect, you know, looking back, it wasn't, wasn't nearly as stressful as some dining rooms working in later, but, uh, certainly as a wide eyed 13 year old, everything is new and fresh and, and, uh, and yeah, that, that was my first, first kick at the can in hospitality and food services. That's pretty amazing. The industry has really been home to so many people in, in, in Canada at various levels of their career. So. I'm sure it's given you a great overview of the restaurant industry and understanding of it, which, is, uh, which has served you well in, in your career now. Um, but tell us a little bit about Transparent Kitchen. What's that all about? And I know you've got um, a couple of businesses, Tables and, and Transparent Kitchen. So maybe we can jump right in and let people know what's that all about. Yeah, absolutely. I think... You know, I've I, and we'll touch on this this afternoon, uh, this morning around uh, yeah, my two different loves, I guess, and and the first one is storytelling and storytelling in all of its various forms. 
Uh, and I, I don't think I really knew that you could love storytelling at an at a earlier age, but I, I've come to realize that it is truly a career for, for many, whether you're an actor or director, or in our case, talking about food and, and, and from writing to visual storytelling uh, and much, much more. There's storytelling through technology as, as I've, I've begun to learn through my career in, in design. So um, for me, I was always fascinated about where food came from. So uh, as a server, um, and this, you know, I guess it really started actually really with my own family history. Um, we've had a family farm in the Grand River Valley uh, in Ontario since 1840. Um, so we, we were one of those original, original British settlers kicked out during the poor act of in the 1830s out of Britain. Um, and, you know, we've had this long ties to the land, um, something that uh, I, I would love to see continue. Um, and from that standpoint, you know, my parents were also early adopters into the CSA farm to table movement in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, as mm -hmm. it started to grow in here in Canada. So, you know, I came from a place where, you know, we didn't necessarily just go to the average chain restaurant every, you know, Friday, like when we went out to dinner, we went out to dinner to an independent restaurant or we cooked at home. So, you know, I, I did start with a foundation where where your food came from is important, uh, but I really started that to discover its depths once I started working in fine dining restaurants. And when you first watch a chef take, you know, get a whole, buy a whole halibut or buy a whole lamb and deconstruct that mm -hmm. animal protein, um, it's, it's an eye-opening experience, uh, because you just see the love and care and you see more importantly, the time that it takes for an individual with that skill set to portion, you know, 64 fillets from a halibut for dinner and have then all of these hand-picked mushrooms and vegetables all around it. Um, and, you know, as a server, I, you know, I had worked in kitchens. I, you know, like so many, I've dishwashed hundred <laughs> percent. I was even uh, worked in sort of this very small gastro pub in my hometown where I even had to be the, uh, the French fry fryer and Caesar salad <laughs> maker at times. But um, I, I far more had the gift of the gab. So the minute I was 18, 19, and I could start serving, serving alcohol and get back on the floor, um, that made sense. And for me, you know, communicating my favorite part of being a server was communicating that story of that dish, trying to translate what the chef had just told me to mm -hmm. the guest. But two things happened. One is I think I doubled down on the love of that storytelling and, and knowing that supply chain. Did the halibut come from, you know, you know, Haida Gwaii, Northern British Columbia, beautiful waters all the way to downtown Ottawa, for example, mm -hmm. where, I really, where I went to university. Um, but what I also started to realize is that how little the guests knew. So it didn't matter, even if they were trying to find out, which so mm -hmm. few people are trying to find out where their food comes from. Unfortunately, there was no way for them to find it. Um, we had a PDF menu online. Our Instagram wasn't very great, nor even if you're trying, is Instagram really designed to tell that complex story of where your food comes from? And there'd be times where there was this constant battle between the guest's expectation of the price of a dish or what that dish should be and what was actually on their plate. That disconnect between the value of that food um, is massive. So that really inspired Transparent Kitchen. And, you know, we had some really fantastic years um, starting out as young, young entrepreneurs. And uh, as you said in the bio, I, I really did just take my tip money. I had no idea my, my goal. The first version of Transparent Kitchen was supposed to be an NGO. Um, so I, I had no idea we, we would end up where we are today. 
So how many people uh, work with you in Transparent Kitchen and what's, what's the goal of your company? What are you trying, what are you doing with your company? Yeah, so I think as many as many startups, it ebbs and flows, and and, and it's certainly been a roller coaster in this last eighteen months. That's for sure as well. For sure. Never mind as a as a young entrepreneur with with just eighteen thousand dollars in his pocket. That's a lot of beer money in your mid twenties, but that is not a lot of tech. <laughs> not a lot of money to 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 start a company, right? No, no, absolutely not. So you know. What's really exciting is actually next week will be the five-year anniversary, uh, June 6th, 2016, is when we launched our very first platform website with these five amazing re- restaurants, which we, you know, we're still working with two of them, uh, Redstone Winery in Niagara and, and Social Restaurant in, in Ottawa. Um, and you know what we simply did back then, five years ago, is we wanted to reimagine what a menu could do, a digital menu online. And, you know, we're certainly seeing now in the, this COVID and post-COVID world, you know, digital menus and ordering from table, and, and that's all great. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, it's struggling. Most of it's just these QR codes that pull up a PDF menu. When right. we talk about reimagining the menu, it's not ordering from the table per se, but it's the actual visualization of what that, I'm going to use that halibut example again, what that dish actually looks like in a digital space and where, and can we communicate even where all the raw ingredients came from? So I remember with, with one of my co-founders, Andre, who's just an incredible self-taught photographer. And, and, and again, I, I hope to w- work with him my, my whole life as his skill sets just hone in even further. Um, we asked him, the chef at the time, my chef, and uh, say, hey, can you cook us 10 dishes? And can you take, get all of the raw ingredients associated with each one of those dishes? Are you serious? Yeah. And the chef had no idea what we were talking about. I said, no, like literally, can you bring out like the duck en fee, like the duck leg or the duck? Can you bring the, the microgreens? Can you bring the, the sorrel mushrooms? Can you bring out all of these, these ingredients? And we want to shoot them individually. So we started then Photoshopping hundreds and then we got up to about 1500 raw different ingredients. Oh my goodness. Photoshop every single one because we wanted to create this database of all these raw ingredients because eventually we wanted to get economies of scale. But the idea is that as we scaled up across these 400 restaurants across North America, you could go in and see each individual dish on their menu, but all the ingredients associated with that dish and where those ingredients came from. So our end goal with Transparent Kitchen, and we didn't quite get there, maybe we will uh, in the future, is that not only could you have this interactive menu experience that taught you, and the visualization is also very important for people, just simply the beauty of the food is lost in a PDF menu. Mm-hmm. But my end goal was not only could you see, see the food, where it came from, the price of that dish, but we ultimately wanted to get to actually a carbon price on every single dish. Oh, really? Wow, that's, that's ambitious. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were, you know, as a tech company too, we were looking at, you know, blockchain technologies, a lot of, you know, a lot of things are happening behind the scenes with DNA barcoding of food and that, and that supply chain management that we knew we were going to be able to create a consumer facing element for that. Um, and ultimately that was the, that is, and was the mission of Transparent Kitchen. And, and as we'll talk about a little bit more today, um, it definitely has evolved into this new product tables, but uh, that's, that's really our roots summed up. That's pretty amazing. And when you go to the length of all of those ingredients being photographed, that that's massive and ambitious. But do you think the customer, I mean, I know today's consumer wants to know where their food is coming from in a way that is so different from maybe 20 years ago. But do you think they want to know that extent? Have you found that that's 
that's necessary or what what's what's at play there? Yeah, great question. Um, yes and no. So certainly we'll, we've seen with the millennial genera generation a, a strive for obviously experiences and experiences are very important for, for my generation. Um, and with experiences comes social social justice as well. Um, you know, it's not not unique to our generation. Social mm -hmm. justice has been in, enshrined in a lot of different generational movements. Um, certainly ours does want to know where their products come from and ethical yes. products. However, is it a driving force for change at the restaurant level? Unfortunately, not, not enough, I would say. Now, for our company, though, um, pre-COVID, it did, um, you know, it was a passion of mine and that was, you know, good enough as the, as the founder, you know, good thing I get to, sure. you, know, I, you know, this is our, our mission, our, our vision. So, you know, sort of you build it and they will come um, was the hope, but there was some other residual benefits as well, um, such as, you know, 19% of adult Americans um, believe or think that they have some sort of food allergy or strong preference, right? So that's one of five adults is 33% amongst their children, which, um, you know, for those that are truly celiac, we have one of our amazing partner staff, ex two star Michelin pastry chef. She developed serious celiac disease and couldn't be a pastry chef anymore. It's, you know, there are obviously very real allergies right. issues out there, but not 33% of children nor 19% of, of adults have an allergy. And so we're in a day and age where people are, you know, making this up in their head or they just believe in these very strict diets. So imagine a software which could tell you every ingredient in every dish and it could match make that preference. So that would, there's a huge market for that too. And then lastly, that sort of, you know, Instagramification of food. And for us, as we databased every, every dish, we were creating this almost discover weekly where, you know, we would say, if you are uh, gluten-free, like spicy food and, and, you know, ramen's your favorite dish, uh, right. we, we have the right dish for you. So there was a lot of use cases once you start building a database of that. Um, I think Spotify is probably one of the best examples of that sort of curation that, okay. that can happen. Um, so it did extend beyond my own moral and environmental values around food. Uh, but, you know, we were trying to sprinkle that in at every step of the way. So you, I, I mentioned when I introduced you that you have helped 400 restaurants. Um, let's talk about what kind of restaurants those are. And are those in Canada or the U.S. or a combination thereof? Um, and how have they used what you do to their benefit? Yeah, we, you know, we started, as I mentioned, um, you know, almost five years ago now with a collection of restaurants in Ontario. Um, Ontario being our home market, you know, we work with restaurants from St. Catharines all the way to, to Collingwood across to Ottawa. So, uh, you know, never quite made it to Thunder Bay, but, uh, you know, I had certainly, um, the province on lock and worked with, you know, you know, really most of our favorite chefs and restaurants. Um, are those uh, not interrupt, but are those mostly independent or chains or both? So the original transparent kitchen model uh, would only work with, you know, we had actually uh, this, this almost triangle uh, Venn diagram of, of who we'd work, work with. So um, you had to be independent, you had to be a scratch kitchen, and you had to have a unique dining room. And I, I think actually this culture of dining is something that gets lost as well, um, you know, in an age where, you know, condos are being built with uh, very, very small kitchens, or in some cases, no kitchens. And uh -huh. we see this counter movement towards ghost kitchens and just eating alone takeout. Uh, we actually believe in, in the value of leaving your home and engaging in 
a culinary experience right. out in public. I think there's a huge mental health benefit to that, a huge community benefit to that, as well as an economic benefit. Uh, I, I certainly, uh, we might talk about this more when we talk about tables, but, um, you know, I, I don't, I think Uber Eats, um, you know, I, I do order takeout, I do order Uber Eats. They are absolute vultures uh, for the restaurant industry. So uh, we can talk about that later, but, um, so we do for Transparent Kitchen Restaurant, we did define a methodology um, around you had to be at least two of those three things. So okay. you either had a beautiful dining room uh, and you were independent. You know, maybe your sourcing was questionable, but you know, if you were going to those lengths, it was important. The perfect Transparent Kitchen Restaurant does all three. You had an amazing chef that knew where every ingredient was coming from and was buying from different suppliers. You'd invested in this beautiful dining room and you were independent now you could be part of a restaurant group absolutely mm -hmm. um you just weren't working with you know that cookie cutter restaurant you see in every suburb um and yeah so that that was really our 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 methodology of who we worked with uh there's roughly thirty thousand of those restaurants across north america so mm -hmm. it's what i would describe the farm to table category today in you know 2021 it's a big niche is how i would describe it so Every major, there's 43 cities in North America with over a million people in them today. Um, most of them have seen an urban revolution, uh, you know, call it gentrification can sometimes be a negative word, but we've actually seen a lot of positive changes um, for those for those that know, you know, went through the 80s and saw that suburban glut and these big mm -hmm. malls built and our downtowns destroyed. I know. Um, you know, urban development can be pro good and bad, but truthfully, what we've seen in a lot of our urban cores is just is quite wonderful. Watching these restaurants return open, these amazing, amazing people creating community in, in our urban centers and now even in the suburbs and rural areas where you see just you can have some of these amazing restaurants now popping up on almost every corner. So we wanted to help tell that we you know really a big part of our mission is to help push that movement even further. Um, as there's very few technology companies that were really servicing, you know, again, this big niche. Uh, and then, you know, we ended up launching in Seattle and Minneapolis. Uh, there was a big supplier idea as well. Uh, we didn't get everything right. We certainly failed on certain things, certain mm -hmm. things we were a lot better at. Um, but yeah. Sounds really interesting. And, and I mean, you've said you've been doing this for five or six years. So that's pretty amazing that uh, you've gotten to that uh, to that length so far. So recently, um, you produced a series called Why COVID Will Save the Restaurant Industry. And um, I found that very interesting as a title because we've watched over the last 15 months as COVID has decimated the restaurant industry in so many shapes and forms. And, um, and hopefully some of those will come back once the pandemic is over. But um, I, I found the title interesting, but really what you do is I guess you take a deep dive into the culture of dining and you examine the aspects that, um, that have and will never change. And, and I guess those aspects that need to change drastically. So when you look at um, Restaurant Economics 101 and the way COVID has actually forced the industry into more of a modern digital world, and we've seen a lot of cases of that. I mean, I think the last year has really accelerated the use of technology in restaurants. And, you know, it spawned the, um, the birth of things like ghost kitchens. Um, so obviously, you know, there's a lot of truth to be spoken on that. But tell us a little bit about that series and, and why you believe that COVID will actually help restaurants. Yeah, you know, as for every industry, 
you know, I guess COVID's, you know, being described as the great shakeup, right? So uh, I'm curious how these conversations are taking place in, you know, healthcare and education. We've seen, you know, uh, huge jumps, leaps forward. And, you know, I'm not intimately involved in those spaces, but, you know, here for us, yeah, you know, we've had, you know, we were going into, I think, year 11 or 12 of declining profit margins. Um, we were facing an industry that I, I think didn't quite know where it was headed, truthfully. Um, you know, certainly, certainly we were spending going into 2020 um, in North America, we were going to spend more money dining out than on groceries for the first time ever. And it would create, you know, become the largest consumer sector in the world, uh, disposable income sector in the world. Um, yeah, so for, there's two things there you mentioned. One is on the technology side, you know, for years and years, I and so many other entrepreneurs, those have certainly been a lot more successful than I have, have really tried to modernize the restaurant industry and bring new technology to it. Um, I think it's gone through sort of three waves, um, some really early, early development in terms of, of, you know, what open table did through the nineties was mm -hmm. really impressive. And as, as much as we all like to, uh, you know, pardon my friend shit on open table, um, you know, it is obviously a very expensive system for most restaurants. Um, and our new system can offset that just a little plug, <laughs> just a little plug. <laughs> um, uh, but it is a great piece of hardware and you have to give credit where credit is due to those founders you know, they, they, like everyone else, door knocked and made restaurants switch from pen and paper to a system that has, has changed the space. Now, does OpenTable, I think, positively benefit the ecosystem today? Not really. I think they should fundamentally change how they operate, being the massive incumbents. They should enable integrations and actually help that ecosystem. You know, you see what Shopify does and they allow everyone to integrate. And they're always trying to benefit that. That mentality needs to happen in our space. Because in the second wave of technology where you saw the POSs come around, um, you know, you saw these massive legacy systems just hold on for dear life rather than innovating. So mm -hmm. everything in the restaurant industry going into 2010 and then 15 and then now was siloed. So nothing would speak to the other thing. Very true. So no wonder the operators were losing their minds come 2018, 19, 20, as then you got this wave of new inventory management stuff. POS has expanded their offerings. You then had this plethora of digital media and social media apps that came through that wanted to help promote your dining room or, or crazy things like ours that wanted to trace every ingredient back. So imagine if that ecosystem had, had open arms to that, that third generation of entrepreneurs, which was myself, we would be in this golden age of, of, you know, again, literally being able to hold up your phone and pre-order to the, the bar, mm -hmm. see where the ingredient was and, and, and be in that, I think, cloud-based immersive technology space that is happening. It just took our industry and is taking way longer. Um, but all that to be said, we can have the fanciest bells and whistles of apps and tech but we are in an economic crisis and we are in a crisis of pricing um, more than anything else in this industry because we are the last fixed capacity business that doesn't premium price, dynamically price. We have flat fee. So whether you come in at 5 p.m. on a Monday to sit by the bathroom or 7 p.m. on a Saturday, mm -hmm. sit at the best table, you pay the same for that dining experience. And, you know, we'll definitely, I definitely want to dive, dive deeper onto this concept, but it's not about menu pricing. We're not after, because I think it has been tried and it has mostly failed on dynamic menu pricing. 
because people, again, it goes back to my original love of the storytelling around value. People's conception of what food is worth versus what it actually costs is, is I think is an impossible thing to change. To, to change. So, but we get what real estate is. We get that the courtside tickets for the basketball game or the first class in the plane or the best hotel room is different. So I think that's where the industry needs to focus its attention because we are a real estate business. We have square footage, we pay commercial rent and we have better tables than others. And people know that it's just common sense. So that's an interesting theory. And, and you know, whenever I talk to a restaurant owner or chef, they're very frustrated because you know they know that the the cost of the dish that they're promoting should be a lot higher because the ingredients, you know, are quality ingredients, the time, the effort, all of that, it needs to be higher, but there's such resistance to price from a consumer point of view that consumers just don't want to pay, you know, whatever it is, $25 for a dish of pasta or $30 for, for a pasta dish. So there's always that disconnect in trying to raise those prices, as you said, because people just are resistant to, to that. So the whole dynamic model works well when you're looking, like you said, at a sports arena with courtside or gold seats at the Scotiabank arena and all of that. But how would that work in a restaurant? Because yes, there's better seating for sure, but it's still a smaller space and you're not seeing someone performing on stage. It's a little different. How do you, how do you translate that is, is what I'm asking. Absolutely. The, so to touch on dynamic pricing first, I, and you're, you're spot on there with, with this, this hesitation consumers will have. And, and the actual economic theory around that is, is elasticity of demand. So for every dollar you increase, you're actually scaring away potential customers. Um, you know, it's hard to say what that perfect price is of your burger. Uh, you'd have to do true economic theories, A and B testing. Um, of course, a restaurant owner can't do that. And, and, and you would never expect someone to be able to do that while, while they're operating an independent business. Um, you know, big chains do. You know, big chains are testing prices constantly. Um, and even they don't get it right. Um, and they probably want to charge more. Um, so, you know, I think restaurants could, should continuously increase prices year over year to make sure they're in line with inflation, other costs, but they're always going to hit a limit. And as mm -hmm. we see this, you know, we haven't even touched on the labor shortage, which is just, just huge. It's huge on both sides of the border. Um, as well as what I think we'll be seeing double digit food price increases right now, uh, depending on, you know, between just certainly on animal protein, never mind on, on, on everything else. So, um, food prices will have to go up one way or the other. But when we look at bottom line profit and actually healthy profit, I think there's another thing. Restaurant owners are sometimes afraid. I think it's a weird cultural thing too, where we're almost afraid to be profitable at times. We don't want to brag to our friends. We don't want to show off, but, but we need a healthy in between. You know, we're mm -hmm. not, none of us are going to be Bezos. <laughs> none of us are going right. to make that type of money that is, that is causing human inequality. We, we need to make sure that we have healthy businesses that we can't, that if, you know, something like a black swan event like COVID, we don't die within a week. Like we, we exactly. should have more savings than that. So for, when we talk about real estate, um, you know, before we even get into dynamic pricing, I'll, I'll do a little mini history on just the history of pricing. Well, 
there's premium seeds. So that's first thing. And that's actually just the first thing we're trying to tackle. We're not even at dynamic pricing yet with our new system tables. We're just trying to get restaurants to premium price and premium pricing has been around since the gladiators, you know, mm-hmm. you paid more to sit, sit courtside to watch the gladiators and you had, you had the, the royalty up here and then you had the proletariats everywhere else. So it, it, it's premium seating is, is, is again, a, a human thing. Um, then you would, you know, reselling. So could, could you and I trade tickets? You know, there mm-hmm. were scalpers. There was, you know, obviously that whole, there's auctions. So yes. could we, could we openly bid, you know, we're seeing that in real estate right now. Interesting. Driving people insane that you can't see, you know, these closed auctions. It's, it's, it's wrong. Economists love auctions. Everyone, you ask any economist, auctions are the best way to price something. Um, famously, the two best platforms ever do that, eBay and Google. Ebay, it's all about demand, right? Right. So what and what what pricing is from an economic standpoint is actually just trying to match one's utility. So you and I might have two very different utility curves based on what and translate that into real life is you might like the booth table way more than I like the booth table. Right. I, I personally love sitting at the bar. I, if I go on a date, if I'm out with friends. I, I covered the bar. You might cover the booth. Someone else with a big family might cover that private. Great point. Yeah. So what a business does and core doesn't matter if you're left wing, right wing, what, what a business should be doing. And I believe this is just a healthy thing is you're supposed to just be matching the utility cost, the utility of your customer with the price of your product. And when you do that, everyone does win. It's not like a political statement. It just is true. If, if we're in a free market, um, you know, in society that we're in, and that should be a goal of the restaurant. And if you translate that even a level deeper, that's just called guest services. <laughs> like, why would you want to put someone at a table they don't want to sit at and then in a business where we can barely make money? Um, so we're just trying to get to premium seating. And then dynamic pricing is when, you know, truly an algorithm kicks in at that point. So it was first started by American Airlines in the 1980s after the U.S. deregulated their pricing structure nationally. Uh, hotels followed in 2000. Um, the Boston Celtics and, and Dallas Stars were the first sports teams to do it in North America in 2008 and 9. And then the Raptors followed shortly after. And then basically other, every other league by 2010. Um, and then, you know, Uber and Airbnb came along. And Uber really changed our notion. They invented something called surge charging. You know, they didn't invent it, but they mm-hmm. certainly in our imagination, we saw, oh, if it's raining, it's now four times more expensive to get in this vehicle. And finally, I think where our model is going to go, uh, Airbnb said, well, we can correlate billions of data points around the world, um, both independent and dependent variables and say, hey, host, on race weekend, um, your Airbnb should be this price and uh, on this weekend it should be this price. Um, so you can dynamically price to the minute, you can dynamically price to the day. Um, you know, we're going to be somewhere in between to help restaurants, but we just need to get them to start seeing their dining rooms as real estate. So how hard is that to do? Because let's face it, the restaurant industry can be very stuck in ways, you know, that they've always done and making that big change is a huge departure for them. So what's, how challenging is that for you? So before COVID, uh, I thought my gut feeling was it was impossible to do. So, or at least impossible with my bank account. Um, <laughs> so uh, maybe someone at, with, with far more money could have, could have chipped away at that problem um, bit by bit. And, and that was truthfully our plan. So 
you know, we'd gotten up, to, as you mentioned, those 400, 400 restaurants. And, and our goal was to raise more capital, get into more major markets. And after the menu software, our goal was to launch what we are doing today, this table system. So, um, and just to clarify for the audience, what, what we actually do today is we go into restaurants and we 3D map the inside of the restaurant with those real estate Matterport cameras or other 3D cameras. And so you just do those conventional, very beautiful HD walkthroughs of a dining room. We often shoot them, we shoot them day or night. So there's a lot that are like candlelit and very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's not every table. We work with independent restaurants and all restaurants now uh, under the tables model. So big, big, small corporate chain or otherwise, um, anyone can participate. Uh, and we, we don't care about every table in the dining room. We care about that 10 to 20% of that dining room real estate that generally doesn't move because as a restaurant manager, I know you need to turn twos and fours and six and eight tops into tables and, you know, very quickly in service, but it's those corner tables, those booths, those window tables, those bar sections, those, the people are fighting for and are coveted. Um, we list them on this 3d system that goes right on the restaurant's website, onto their Instagram, on our platform. And people can choose now to sit in that particular seat or section. Interesting. And on peak times, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or some restaurants peak times brunch, whatever your peak time is, when there's a huge amount of demand and not enough supply, um, we're giving restaurant uh, consumers an option to pre-buy that table, five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks to guarantee that booth for that time. It's fully okay. voluntary. So you don't want to pay. You don't, you don't have to, you just go through their usual reservation system. And like, usually you roll the dice. You might be at the bathroom. You might get your table you want, <laughs> but the likelihood there's a hundred tables and you want that table, you're not going to get it. Um, and for the restaurants, what's so important is it's a win for consumers. Like guests love it. We've wanted this forever. Uh, finally, it's, 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 it's here. And for restaurants, most importantly, there's no cost of goods associated. So that $10 is straight bottom line profit. Um, you know, and we've, we've sort of put that call out there where to, so we can make this claim, but I'm 99% certain we are the first ever profit sharing tool for restaurants. Um, and, and that's how our, our new system works. So that's under the tables umbrella? Correct. So it's still the same team, Transparent Kitchen. We, we were able to weather that storm of COVID and, and make it through. Uh, and, and to really address that first question is, is, there is the world is a different place since last March 15th, 2020 here in North America. And I think it has been this great shakeup. And this is why we've taken this idea that I've been thinking about for years, been writing about for years, and it's it was time to, to put our money where our mouth is and just go for it. Um, so we are launching, which is very exciting, in, in six markets, three, three in Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, and Ottawa, um, and you know, across Ontario, uh, as well as Miami, LA, and San Francisco uh, this summer. So we're, we're, we're actually going to be going, I think, much faster than last time, and uh, the, the demand is, is, is there because restaurant owners, you know, they're open to anything now. And I think this message though resonates. It's not about adopting again, just some app that's helping mm -hmm. potentially with social media, which is still important, but this is a bottom line profit tool that customers are demanding. And it, it can be, honestly, it's for us, it's, it's just bringing this industry. We, we haven't invented premium seating. We haven't invented 3d mapping. It's, it's right. putting it together in a way that can help a huge amount of people, again, match that price to the utility curve rather than just trying to guess what the price of the burger people would be accepted, you know, acceptable at. 
Interesting. And as someone who's worked in both markets in North America and in Canada and the U.S., do you see differences in the U.S. market in terms of the restaurant industry and how receptive they are to this kind of um, innovation? Um, I, I think, you know, the U.S. tends to be a little farther ahead than us in Canada in, in adaptation to, to various tools and, and trends. How do you see that? Yes, I, you know, I think there is a, there definitely is a big brother, little brother thing still, you know, between the Canada and the U.S. I don't think that's ever going to go away. So, you know, give, give Americans credit where, where credit is due. I, take take the, role, uh, the vaccine rollout, just an example, you know. They can go from zero to 100, zero to 60 in five minutes, apparently. You know, it's yeah. hilarious. They, they'll, they'll battle the, the Affordable Health Care Act in the U.S. For, for generations, but all of a sudden they roll out the single greatest public health care initiative in, the, in world history, and they can do it in three months. So, Amazing. Uh, you know, we, we won't, won't go down that you know <laughs> rabbit hole of, of hilarious contradictions that, that is the U.S. Um, but, you know, I think food, food culture is geographical, um, city to city, even neighborhood to neighborhood. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when, you know, investors look at this space and those that don't know it, they, they do, they do get afraid initially because they say this, you know, you have to almost win these street fights, like, you know, urban warfare when you launch a, a restaurant technology company and, and on it. And I, I wouldn't say otherwise, I won't sugarcoat it. It is, you got to go neighborhood to neighborhood, um, um, you, you eventually definitely get that snowball effect because they, restaurant owners love to talk, chefs love to talk. So, you know, once you hit some scale, it, you know, people are coming to you, but, but, you know, the difference even between Ottawa and Toronto and, and how people dine out in those two cities, never mind the difference between LA and San Francisco, you know, pe people move to regions because they, had, they, they get a sense of, of that community that they are trying to find. You know, I think, you know, myself really getting my chops in the Ottawa restaurant scene in, in fine dining, <clears throat> you know, Toronto would even look down on the Ottawa scene, but I just, it was so unmerited. Uh, you know, we had, we have some of the best chefs in the country there and, you know, little things when, you know, gold medal plates would happen, you know, Ottawa was the only community where the chefs not competing would go make sure the restaurant of the chef stayed open when they had to go compete at, at the culinary championship. So wow. that was really unique to that city. Um, and, and certainly, um, you know, everyone has their story to tell. So the difference between the U.S. and Canada really isn't a big one in the end. Um, you know, talk to my partner, Steph, who's worked from Sydney, Australia to London, England to Ottawa and, and more. Um, restaurants are restaurants. Um, they're, they're all the same. They operate the same. There's small little cultural differences here and there. But I think this is what makes us very excited is that um, outside some language barriers, uh, you know, we know our system can work everywhere and we're already getting inbound asks from, from, from Europe and, and Australia around, around joining and teams trying to take this there as well. It's amazing. So we talked a little bit about the pandemic and it's hard to ignore it. You know, we've lived through 15 months of, of sheer hell for this industry as it's uh, closed restaurants, opened restaurants, roller coaster rides and everything else in between. What are some of the biggest challenge for the industry as it starts to now look at a post-pandemic recovery and, um, and hopefully over the next month or two, you know, restaurants start to reopen in a, in a, in a bigger way. What do you see as the big, biggest challenges for operators? Yeah, certainly, you know, certainly I'm going to continue to believe in what we've talked about and, and, you know, this real estate concept and how they're going to have to use that, but really it's, it's the profit they can get from this. What are they going to use that for? Is I think at the root of, of, of what would be my answer. 
you know, we, we had touched on it a little briefly today that the labor shortage, you know, that's certainly something I can't solve. Very few people can't solve. Um, you know, you even see that enrollment in culinary institutions are high, like it's, it's at the highest it's ever been and we can't fill these positions. So what's it going to take um, to get, you know, certainly in Canada, we, we were seeing a, a cape, what we'll call a capable cook chef situation, you know, people would come into the kitchen and, and think that they could just start working, but it's not the case. It's a, it's a, it's a trained skill with a mm-hmm with decades of talent and experience you need to get to, to actually open your own. Um, so even these young chefs that they're three years in a kitchen and think they can just go open their own restaurant, that is a learning curve uh, that, that many cannot survive. Um, but even if you go to front of house, it's, it's not, you know, not every 13 year old can get on the floor and figure that out, but not every university student who, you know, generally gets their first hospitality job at that age can either. It, it, it's a grind for anyone who's been there at 1 a.m. polishing cutlery. <laughs> it is not a fun job at times, um, this, despite a lot of the, the social benefits and the cash benefits. So I don't know what it's going to take for people to return. Here in the U.S., they can't, they can't find servers. Like San Francisco just can't find any servers. So, um, you know, oddly because of their immigration policy here and a lot of uh, illegal workers, they're fine in the kitchen, but they can't find servers. We're in Canada, right. it's the op- generally the opposite. We can't find, we can't find cooks. So um, I think that's a huge problem. I, you know, again, my only short-term solution is we have to pay these people more. We need benefits. We, we need, we, we've seen some great initiatives in Canada and in the U.S. around making sure that restaurants um, themselves, those with the means to do, can invest in, 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 uh, benefits for their staff and creating other workplace, you know, protocols that, that make mm-hmm. it a more comfortable place to work. Uh, aside from that, you know, that's going to be a challenge. And I think consumers, again, you know, when we say in a lot of our literature and in our, our technology that it's going to be hard to find a table over the next couple of years, and we mean it. Um, and that's not just COVID related. I think as restaurants reopen, We've, we've been chatting with restaurants down here that, you know, in two weeks, San Francisco uh, fully reopens and yet they're still going to have half their dining room closed because they don't have the staff to right. serve that half the dining room. So yeah. um, that, you know, that's a, that's a huge thing. Um, food costs are always an issue. Um, but I think those are huge challenges. Absolutely. And then, you know, not to get doom and gloom here, but, you know, food costs are a function, certainly of oil prices and, and demand, but they're going to increasingly become a, a function of climate change and food scarcity. Um, we're seeing that, you know, the forest fires across BC and, and California, certainly in Australia, how that impacted it. Uh, you know, our global food supply chain, um, you know, was, was, you know, something as we've talked about today, we were looking at down to fine details, where your cilantro came from, where those mushrooms came from. Yeah. Um, everyone knew that came the first week of COVID, realizing that, you know, it's 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 end of winter um, and trucks aren't maybe going to get over the border. So the industry has a lot of questions. I have very few of the answers. Um, it You know, we are in this exciting period, though, where we're I think we are. I totally agree with the trend that we're going to get into this roaring twenties of unprecedented. I'm just going to say that, yeah. 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 So what what do you do in a market like that where the actual vendors, the actual owners, are facing multiple threats, yet they have a lineup out the door? Like, isn't that this is going to be a fascinating next couple of years? Because you know most businesses die because no customers are coming. This this industry might die with a full dining room. 
What? Think about that. <laughs> I know it's, it's amazing. And you're absolutely right. And so many people have also left the industry due to, uh, to COVID and have decided to try other industries. So there's a, you know, a talent drain, unlike anything we've seen. So the next few years really promise to be uh, very challenging for the industry moving forward. Fraser, as a way to wrap up, because our time is coming to an end, um, obviously, you know, with all of us living through this pandemic for the last 15 months, we've all learned some lessons through it. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned through the pandemic as it relates, not just to your business, but also to your own personal um, life, you know, about yourself? What have, what have you learned? Yeah, I think... I think, you know, everything, you know, and maybe this is more a function of, of my age, you know, leaving, leaving my, my twenties and now heading into that next decade. Um, you're I've told my friends, you're a baby, you're yeah, a baby. <laughs> I know, I'm, uh, I've, I've been saying, oh my, we are, we are the 1991 generation. So everyone is turning 30 this year uh, of my friends. And uh, I keep telling everyone, I'm just going to be uh, 29, but in overtime. So I'll just be <laughs> 29 plus one. And, and I saw, I saw my 80, 88 year old grandmother um, on zoom the other day. And I said, grandma, what you're 29 and how many overtimes? So, <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> she didn't quite get it, but, um, you know, but I think something that's really important for myself. And I, I think, you know, everyone out there, this is, you know, I'm no, I'm no Buddha here with this, this big thought, but cer certainly how just precious time is. Um, and I say this more as, as a function of, of being an entrepreneur. So if you'd asked me, if we had this call on June 6, 2016, um, you know, I would have thought we would be to a million restaurants by now and had, you know, a billion dollars in the bank account and, and, and you just don't realize how long everything takes and just mm -hmm. how much every battle, how much everything you need to fight to win as an entrepreneur, as, as a writer, as someone who wants to, you know, make change in anything they're doing. Ultimately, if you want to be a leader in whatever space you're at, uh, it takes so much time. And so COVID, COVID will be remembered, I think, quite fondly, oddly, by a lot of people. Um, you think so? Yeah. And I don't, I, maybe this isn't even an odd statement. Um, you know, people like myself, I was living out of a suitcase for two straight years um, and COVID forced me to go stay in my own bed for six months straight. Um, you know, oddly, you know, the minute I was able to leave, I, I guess I was back on the road, the business, the business demanded and, and we had to get going, but I actually got to sit in my office and run right and listen to music and just stay in some peace and, and think about think about things that I would not have had the opportunity to think about if we had just been racing and racing and racing. Good point. We were. And, you know, we saw that across society from, you know, the joke around everyone make, learning how to make sourdough for the first time. Yes. But that was something that was quite special and beautiful uh, and around that phenomenon of COVID. You know, certainly the introverts loved it for a long time. I am not one of those. So I was craving... Uh, you know, uh, an old fashioned reaction. Yeah. At a bar, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's what taught me the most is that, and, and for my co-founders and, and some of my best friends, but you know, for my own team, how do we continue to carve out these blocks of time where we can actually just slow time down and have these deeper conversations? Um, and you know, that's something that we're going to continue to do throughout post COVID is, is, you know, this notion of this, you know, you know, not some corporate retreat where, but where can you actually find time for, for individuals to sit in a room in silence and sort of contemplate life and thoughts in a meaningful way? Um, I think that's what I'm going to be my biggest take home. 
It'll be interesting to see how much of that actually translate once we get past this COVID um, interval, because we've all had so many hard lessons and we all have said, you know, we're going to look at life differently, but it'll be interesting once we get back into the rat race to see whether or not that actually happens. So, so we'll have to check in in a few months and see how you're doing. Um, but thank you so much for, for being here this morning. Um, it sounds like you have a great company and a great concept, and it'll be interesting to see how it does over the next year as we, uh, as we get into the roaring 20s, as you say. So good luck and, and thank you for, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. You take care and stay safe. Cheers. You too. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of the Table Talk Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love for you to rate and review our show. Also, make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button. For additional resources related to today's episode, please visit our website, foodserviceandhospitality.com. Until next time.